72 Voices is a project by 72 and Sunny, who are a creative accelerator with offices in Sydney, LA, Singapore, Amsterdam and NYC. This series champions the new generation of creative entrepreneurs in Australia. In the chats, we identify smarts and insights that we hope in some small way will inspire the next generation of Australian entrepreneurial success stories. Welcome to 72 Voices, the podcast series, with our CEO, Chris Kay, produced by our friends at Otis Studios. Quick PSA, this interview was recorded outside the studio. This week's chat is with Taryn Williams, founder and CEO of The Right Fit and Wink Models. The Right Fit is a tech startup that matches the right talent with the right brief. Taryn is also a mentor for Tech Ready Women and an advisory board member for Lamborghini Australia. Any chat with Taryn is always inspiring and entertaining in equal measure. I really love her energy and learned a lot from her perspective on the early stage ecosystem in Australia, specifically how we fare as a country versus others, what drives her as a serial entrepreneur and how she views the world of female entrepreneurship. Hopefully you get as much out of our chat as I did. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Good. Now, thank you for giving me the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, so I, if it's cool, I'd like to start with just a couple of questions as a means of an introduction and then maybe we can just chat a little bit. Sounds perfect. So if you could start with who are you, what do you do and why do you do it? I'm Taryn Williams and I'm the founding CEO of both Wink Models and The Right Fit. Yeah. Uh, Wink Models is a traditional offline modeling agency. So we have about 650 models Australia wide, um, uh-huh. predominantly commercial models. Um, we've got offices in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, and that business is nearly 12 years old now. So yeah, and how old were you when you started? First baby. Uh, I was 21 when I started that business. So wow. Yes, I modeled myself, and yeah. then I worked client side, um, mm-hmm. producing photo shoots mainly, but also some live experiential stuff. And I just thought there's got to be a better way of doing this. The whole industry was, it was a really convoluted industry, and it had a lot of the sort of preconceived ideas of what you think of industry, so catty, yeah. bitchy attitudes, people not getting paid on time, yeah. and real sort of rule by fear, nature from agents, and I thought, I can totally change this, like, blissful made me, <laughs> right, at 21, I was like, that my own business. And what was it like at 21, like, like making that jump, like, how did you feel, how did you get support? Yeah. I really, I was surrounded probably in my, my parents aren't entrepreneurs, but my, in my sort of late teens, early 20s, a lot of my sort of mentors and close friends who were a little bit older than me were um, entrepreneurs or had their, entrepreneurs wasn't a thing back then, right? <laughs> it was just like being a small business owner, right? Yeah. They were small business owners. Yeah. And so I didn't kind of think, oh, you go to uni and then you get a job and then you work in your cubicle until you can have your own office. Like, so it hadn't been my experience. Um, so I had these people around me who had actually one who owned his own uh, advertising agency and then another that owned a chain of um, hotels. So, it was kind of, I guess I'd been exposed to these people, so I didn't know that it was such a big risk and such mm-hmm. a big um, jump to take. And I was fortunate enough to have those people around me when I had a client ringing who was, you know, I need a copy of the public liability insurance. I was like, what's <laughs> that? <laughs> you know? So it was definitely a baptism of fire. Yeah. And also that we built the business on the premise that we would pay all of our talent within seven days of doing a job, irrespective of when we got paid by a client. Mm-hmm. So we were bankrolling like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of clients' bills at any one time yeah. to meet this promise. So yeah. in my head, I, I, it had not occurred to me that we'd be paying out, you know, a model's $30,000 yeah. Toyota shoot when we hadn't <laughs> paid yet. So I had a lot to learn in a really, really short period of time. 
What was the biggest learning that with that, that those many years? Ooh, in the early years, yeah. it was definitely around delegating. I was a massive control freak. I know you might find that hard to live. But I was a massive control freak. I wanted to touch everything. I wanted to be across every single job in the business, every single hire, every single model, everything. Doing our best, like ridiculous. How long could that last for? Or how long did that last well, for? Well, oh, I reckon two years. My team will probably argue and say like that, but look, at least two years. And it wasn't until I realized like we would literally turn clients away or we couldn't keep on top of things because I was like, no, I need to touch it. So then I realized I was the bottleneck in the mm. growth of the company. And the only way this thing was going to survive was if I could learn to sort of let go. But there's also that like real small business mindset as well, where you're going, well, I could do our bars and it would cost us nothing, or I can pay this person to do it, it's going to cost me 400 bucks. Or, and then you realise, well, actually, my time is better spent when servicing yeah. clients. Or, so there is yeah. that sort of cost benefit analysis yeah. you have to go through. But it yeah. takes you, well, obviously, 21 takes you even longer <laughs> to figure that shit out. So. <laughs> and then, so, and the right thing you started? Nearly three years ago now. Wow, so, didn't yeah. Realize. Okay. Yeah, so. And, and, and after doing Wink, why did you go, okay, I need to do something else? Yeah, so I'd been in that business probably about eight years yeah. um, when the idea sort of came up for the right fit. So I built an end-to-end onboarding, calendar management, and payroll integration software, which mm-hmm. sounds very boring, but essentially there was nothing off the shelf. We had 650 models. They were all over the country. They had all different shift times, pay rates. Um, so we managed all of their superannuation. It's like a really, wow. really tough yeah. business. And so we would be texting them fast turnaround times, texting who's available for a casting at three o'clock, okay, you'll call time, I did half an hour overtime, okay, I'll update that client invoice. Nothing. So much opportunity for human error, not scalable, and if a booker left the business, all of that came in the dependency obviously was a massive issue. So I thought, I'll just build an app, right? Because apps are really cool at the time. I'm gonna build an app. (laughs) And it's going to like check model availability and then send them the details. They get and it, you were building it just for you internally. Just for yeah. yeah. And, um, and of course, I'd never, again, never been through this process before. So I was like, I'll go out to tender. Mm. I'll ask three different groups to pitch on this idea, you know, build some wireframes, build this thing. So found a group, got the product built probably about, I don't know, it, three times the cost of what it should have been um, from the initial scope. But again, I had no idea about building an MVP, like the minimum viable product. Yeah. I was like, let's add that. Oh, wow, we can sort by like whether or not they've got their ears pierced. Let's add that as well. <laughs> I might need that one day. I was like, I was crazy, adding everything. Great client. And of course, yeah, exactly. They were like, absolutely. Just moving up the dollar sign. So um, built that product and sort of, yeah, it took about 18 months. Mm. And so during that period, our industry was changing a lot. There was a move towards these small bits of digital snackable content. Brands weren't hiring a 19-year-old 511 model to be in their car anymore. Yeah. They were hiring like the Eurasian 45-year-old man who can actually afford to drive the car. You know, like, surprise. Um, mm. And there was a rise of social media influencers and people building their own brand online. The cost of building your own website had gone down. So there were sort of all of these leading indicators. And we had so many talent approaching us saying, hey, I've been approached you know, to do this ad for car brand or whatever it might be. Um, can you negotiate this deal for me? I don't have an agent. And we're like, oh, actually, you're like an extra MasterChef contestant. Like, and it always came back to this question of where would I put you on the website? Mm. Like, I don't have a bucket to put you in. You can't go in men or yeah. men or sports or, you know, so, um, but they were obviously getting approached for commercial deals. And on the flip side, we had clients coming to us saying, hey, we're looking for 
you know, professional surfer for this, you know, telco ad or whatever it might be. Like, we're a modeling agency. Like, yeah. Sure, we can find you one, but, you know, ideally on the website, we can model. Mm. Uh, so I could see there was this sort of, there was latent supply on one side and then yeah. there was this demand that wasn't being met on the other. And this whole thing of content had just changed, right? Mm. Like, everyone was grappling with who owns it, how do we deal with it, how do we create enough of it, how do we unlock our budgets to yeah. do that. So I've fallen in love with this idea of using technology to solve problems and I knew enough to be dangerous, but I didn't know enough to start a tech company. But I thought I've got to do it anyway. So I am... Um, and, and at that moment, because you'd done one business, were you like, okay, I've got the energy again to go for another? Yeah, and I had a cheap beat. Like yeah. I could do that with my eyes okay. closed, that business. And yeah. um, I loved it, but it wasn't challenging me anymore. And do you um, think that happens for most entrepreneurs? There's a moment when you ground the baby, the baby's successful, that you want to go and, fight. sorry, this is a really awful yeah. analogy, you want to go and have another That's baby? Yeah, my first and second baby. <laughs> um, yes, I do. I think it's very rare to meet an entrepreneur who grows and scales with the company. Yeah. It's a very different skill set being an entrepreneur to being a CEO. Yeah. Um, and, and ideally your business grows and needs like a, a really robust and strong CEO. Yeah. Yes. Um, especially if you're going to go on lists or do any of those things. So mm. they're very different skill sets. So I think you either are a very rare character that can do that yeah. and can self-identify the weaknesses and skill sets that you lack. Mm. Um, which again, I don't think is necessarily always a founder's trait to be able to go, I'm great at this. <laughs> Maybe naturally we think we're great at everything. Yeah. Um, or you leave and you go and do what you're really good at, which yeah. is ideating and finding resources and mm -hmm. seeing trends in the market. So um, I think it's a combination of those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I always say I'm really brilliant, like zero to two years, and after that I'm not great. <laughs> then someone else, is, someone else is to run. Um, yeah, so I sort of saw these sort of trends mm. and I'd love building this product. And I got to the end of building this product for Wink and I was like, oh, I'm going to white label this and sell it to other yeah. agencies. Before I realized I was just like, terrible idea and building a SaaS business would be like punishing <laughs> our industry and no one had any money that would be able to buy it anyway so I was like oops uh, close that idea and ideally I thought maybe I can use some of this software the initial build of the area but it was a real knockdown rebuilds yeah so yeah um, what I've learned from that first process was obviously building an MVP but also I wanted to bring all my dev in-house so mm -hmm. I went out to market and I sort of kicked this idea around with people that I really liked and respected and I said, look, if I built something like this, would you use it to put to a lot of sort of big e-com players yeah. and advertising agencies? And yeah. So I think there's something here. Um, and it's been proven three years in? Yeah. So yeah. here we are three years in, it's still alive. So yeah. that's a good thing. <laughs> but also, maybe three years in, it's, it's your feet time again? I would love to do another project, I'm not going to lie. Um, I absolutely love this beast, you know, yeah. it's, it's an amazing business and the way the market has responded to it has been incredible. I mean, it's had so many challenging times, but it's, I think we, we identified a problem that really needed to be solved and the market is still figuring out how to solve itself. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're right place, right time, possibly a little bit early. Um, and it's just amazing seeing clients now create content like never before and it's really democratized that for both sides like allowing talent and yeah to be able to control their own careers and monetize that and yeah work in a way that suits them it's really interesting you said something which is a, a founder uh 
always is looking for the next thing or looking for the next inspiration. Where do you find your inspiration from? So when you're looking at, at gaps in the market or opportunities, where, like, where do you look or where do you get inspired? Oh, it's amazing the number of things that just present themselves to you on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I think like the, the, the smallest detail of a conversation can just like spark, spark something. something. I think, oh, that's something I need to, mm. to dig into. Or, you know, I read an article or obviously uh, something <clears> on the news and I think that's you know, with the, and I think it's probably because we get exposed to so many different things, yeah. um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. I work with so many amazing people across different sort of yeah. industries that yeah. I think, oh, if I could put that person and that problem in and these resources together, I could solve that and that would be business. So It's interesting. I was talking to uh, another person, a guy called Rob Deeming, who's the CEO of Billy, mm -hmm. uh, and he was talking about how he tries to take him fully out of his role and his conversations in his industry yeah. to try and get inspiration. We had a conversation about, he'd been to China and I'd been to China about 18 months ago, uh, where for a week I just met people who had nothing to do with advertising. Yeah, uh, amazing idea. And that, and that space and that ability just to start to look at what other people are doing and see if you can inspire yourself. Yeah. I find it really interesting because people do run so quickly in startups and entrepreneurs run so quickly. How, how do you find the space? It's very different to, I mean, even to my first business, obviously, which yeah. is a traditional like business in the true sense. Because there's, I think this is weird, like we use the word startup for like also small businesses, like yeah. really, startups are like fast growth tech companies in my mind. So yeah. um, it's so different. Mm. I mean, obviously the modeling agency was always cash flow positive. It yeah. grew really organically. As we grew, we hired more people, we spent more resources, you know, it was yeah. right? Yeah. And it had very, you know, um, steady growth, year-on-year growth every year for 12 years. Totally different to a startup, which is, you know, not cash flow positive from day one. Mm. We hired the best in breed. We went out. We knew we had really aggressive targets to hit and we had to find product market fit as quickly as possible. Yeah. So it's a totally different beast. You do, and you, you track different metrics, I think, in the business. So you're not just running a P&L and looking at yeah. how you can make this thing profitable and you know, you're looking at such um, detailed minutiae of how people interact with our product. You know, I find it fascinating because the smallest change on how something functions on our yeah. website or how we engage with a client can make a fundamental difference to the average order value or yeah. their repeat rates and things like that. It's phenomenal. And do you get, because you're running so quickly, do you ever get time to stop and think? How do, you, how do you manage that? that? No, I don't think you ever like totally disconnect from your business. I yeah. think, at the end of the day, and I think inherently the buck stops with me, right? And mm -hmm. I take it very seriously that I've asked these employees and shareholders and to come on a journey with me and carry these big rocks uphill with me mm -hmm. on like a day-to-day -day basis, right? Like they're yeah. literally following my vision, and I've said this is a good idea, we should do this, and like they're like, okay, we got you, and they're so. I think that. I take that very seriously, and yeah. so, um, and I these people have mortgages and kids, you know, bills to pay. So um, it's sort of my duty to make sure that mm. this thing works, or we give it a red hot go and make sure it does. So yeah. um, I don't think you ever really get to fully disconnect, and I think maybe that's also innately like an entrepreneur's DNA is that we're yeah. we're so engrossed in either what we're doing now or what we're thinking about doing next. Um, I think it's sort of inherently how we're wired. Um, I do try and get some sort of healthy separation <laughs> from, you know, the, the day yeah. to day of it. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and how do you, it's interesting you talk about the way you talk about your employees doesn't feel like employees. Mm. And, and, you know, as you say, you have a vision and you have to inspire them. You know, how, how do you do that? 
it, it was really interesting that I was having another conversation with someone who was talking about transparency and trust. Yeah. And the more transparent you are, the more people will trust your vision. Yeah. You know, how do, how do you, how do you so work true. like that? So true. And I even look at the differences between two businesses again, because in the first business, we, I never, it never, never occurred to me to give like every single person in our team access to the PL. Like, Firstly, you have this idea that it might scare the shit out of staff, like you know, they don't necessarily want to see your operating costs or whatever. Um, but there's also this whole idea of like, well, there's staff, there's a separation. In our in the right fit, the tech stuff, everyone has full transparency to pin out wow. to the operating metrics, to what the business is doing. Okay. They have a day-to-day heartbeat on, you know, KPIs so they can yeah. see, okay, well, you know, th- this is my behavior has this effect. Had, had this impact, yeah. which is both, you know, obviously, hopefully positive for them. can be demoralizing. Obviously, if you're having a terrible month and everyone's going, what am I doing? Um, but it's amazing. The more transparent, and I can go to them and say, guys, I had a really tough month. Or, yeah. hey, look, we just had a you know, deployment that was full of bugs. Can everyone see the impact that that had on user experience or checkout or whatever it is? That's so, quite unique, isn't it? To allow people that sort of level of access? startups like yep. people are pretty transparent yep. um, there's some amazing US companies that where you can see every like literally online you can see what every person in the company gets paid yep. their equity holdings like they're fully transparent to not mm. just internal employees but the public so yep. I think it's really cool I think it means yep. that everyone really knows where they, they stand and they can add so much more value because I think building a great product is not just about sil- like siloing engineering or marketing or sales or whatever. The only way that we're going to be able to build this thing and fundamentally change how our industry works and how people have always done a particular job yeah. is if those units can operate really well together. So if they are saying, okay, well, number of client signups has dropped off, engineering can be thinking about what has something I've done impacted mm. that or, you know, sales coming back saying, Customers aren't liking this feature. If they're talking to engineering, and engineering can think about improving that, or you know, have product or whatever. So yeah, yeah. The more transparency I think we give them, the better. Obviously, yeah. it needs to be moderated with um, an explanation of what some of these things mean. Well, that's what I was going to ask because obviously there's an education job there. Because yes. as you say, sometimes if you open the kimono too much, totally. it might get really scary. Yeah. And and so how do you educate someone who who hasn't really seen the effect of a PL before? How do you? Totally. And the other thing is like startups are a totally different beast. And a lot yeah. of people haven't worked in startups before and they're like, I love to work in startups. It's going to be so much fun. There's going to be like a ping pong table. And they're like, oh, actually, no, it's just lots of long hours. Like, <laughs> jokes on you. Um, so, yes, there is a case of having to educate them and explain. And even things like I was talking to someone yesterday about um, giving employees equity. All of our mm. team have equity in the business. Okay. And, um, you know, they get that from day one, it's part of them joining the team, you know, they're just as much an owner of this company as I am. So going through that process with them and, and giving them equity, but with a lot of people, you know, when you give someone equity, they get this really scary letter from like an accountant that's like, here's your tax obligations. And you know, when this company sells, you will have to pay blah, 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 blah. And you need to set up a, a family trust to put this in. And it's all very overwhelming. Oh my God, have you just given me this giant tax problem? What are you doing? I thought this was supposed to be a nice thing. So actually having to take the time to explain things like that, especially to people who haven't worked in startups yeah. before. Things like vesting schedules that they don't understand. What does that mean? When do I get my equity? How does this work? Yeah, um, yeah explaining to them the P&L, and yeah. the difference between gross profit and net profit, and really walking people through things to make sure they understand. Yeah. And they understand just because, you know, net profit for this month might be X, doesn't mean that 
you know, yeah, you can I'm, go I'm, buy I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm walking home <laughs> with all of that in my pocket. Like, oh, you know, if only that was the way it worked. <laughs> so helping them understand all of that and thinking about the longer term vision um, for the business and looking back, the great thing with Wink is obviously it's 12 years old and you can look back historically and you can say, well, mm. you know, this is where we were in 2013 or, yeah. you know, look at from here to here and um, yeah. um, what are the different changes in the business across that. Interesting you talk about uh, there's certain types of talent that works in, well in startup. What, what do you think are the characteristics that you look for? They've got to be really gritty. Like yeah. That's the, I think they've so, got to have a hustle. They've got to have a hustle. They've got to be gritty. They've got to be okay with wearing lots and lots of hats because mm. no one really has it. I mean, as much as you like to think you've got a job description, you don't really have a job description. Like, sure, you probably have a bit of an idea who you report to, um, but you need to be okay with coming into work today and priorities may have changed from yesterday. Mm -hmm you know, deployment's gone wrong or this new massive client has come in that we all need to, you know, switch and give our attention to or amazing market opportunity or an acquisition, whatever it might be. So being okay with being able to make those um, operate under uncertainty and I think that's probably the hardest thing for most people is they're used to a very rigid setting a six-month strategy, following the strategy, never de yeah. deviating from the strategy. And obviously we have a six month strategy, but you need to be able to go, okay, well, we need to get here. Sometimes it's going to have to go this way to end up here. So. And how do you find getting that talent in Australia? So hard. Yeah. I mean, I have no experience in hiring internationally, so, yeah. um, but it's so hard. I, it's really hard to find people who, firstly, I, I mean, I think there's this massive hype at the moment, you know, this, this, I wouldn't be in startups and entrepreneurs mm. and the new, you know, celebrities or whatever. Yeah. So I think there's this, um, this, yeah, challenging time where people want to be in that space and they see it as, you know, it's going to have this amazing upside for them yeah. or whatever without probably realising the realities of the data. And it's fucking high risk. Like, it's a... Not everything succeeds. No, exactly. 90% fails. Yeah. So, like, it's really risky and you need yeah. to be okay with that. that yeah. You know, you buy into an idea and the mm. company that you're working in today might be very different in six months' time. It's yeah. not like, you know, going to work at a telco or a bank where pretty much know where that's going to end up. So, um, yeah, it's really hard to find people and then it's hard to find the right person for the right role at the mm -hmm. right time because yeah. the marketing manager I need today yeah. is not the marketing manager I need in six months' time. So they either need to be resourceful enough to be able to upskill themselves and adapt and change and be able to fill that role or to be able to self-identify that this is going to be an opportunity now and then I'm going to go to another company or I'm going to go to a different type of yeah. role in the organisation. And do you think as a country... When you look at uh, universities, government, we're helping prepare the next generation of entrepreneurs, or or at, or at minimum, talent for startups. No. Yeah. Overarchingly, this is the worst country for it. I think. I mean. <laughs> so controversial. Oh yeah, exactly. Tell us what you really think, Karen. Um, no, and you know we're actually just going through a really painful process with our R and D grant at the moment because R and D um, regulations here have just got tighter. They're auditing more and more companies. And I'm not saying that, you know, audits are a bad thing. Of course, yeah. like, you know, as a taxpayer, I want my money spent on yeah. what it should be spent on. Um, but we're absolutely paralyzing startups and we're not encouraging people to innovate and try yeah. new things and invest in research and development, which is what we need as a country. Yeah. Otherwise, the best and brightest minds go offshore, which is what we see at the moment. And there's no incentive here to, to keep the company in Australia. Yeah. You can get access to better and cheaper talent offshore. You get more tax breaks offshore. So why would you stay? And it's such a shame. And how's it going to change? It's a great question. I think that we need to take a really proactive approach. Like what Israel was fantastic. Like it made mm. a strategic decision as a nation to go, we can't 
relying on resources forever. What is going to be? What are we going to be known for as a country? Yeah. So what are we going to invest in? And if it wants to, we want it to be innovation. We need to invest in that. We need to make a decision and go. Okay. Well, what's that going to look like? Is it tax incentives first of all? I mean, great that we've got these new early stage investor tax offset. Great, yeah, you know, fantastic to encourage people to invest in startups. We need the startups want to invest in in the first place. So I think it needs to be a combination of a, a healthy appetite to risk as a government as mm. well, um, and within organisations as well, championing entrepreneurs and, and yeah. not stifling. You know, I think you see these big corporates going, "We're going to have an innovation lab and." And then we'll just stifle every single idea that comes out, you know, like allowing and helping businesses, you know, because that comes from a great place. Like they want to innovate, yep. but they don't have the resources or the skills necessarily to do that. So helping put in place programs to allow them to do that. And so how would you rate the startup scene in this country? It's interesting now, I was talking to someone else who moved here in 2013 and the words they used were, it was just a wasteland. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no real VCs. Uh, there's no funds, there's no real uh, people doing anything but wasn't just a copycat business. Yeah. As in a copycat business from a, a global, uh, something that worked globally and then bringing it to Australia. How do you see it in 2019? I think we actually have some amazing founders here and I think we have some amazing ideas here. And I think Australia's always been very innovative. Like, you know, you see some of the things that have come out of Australia, like cochlear implants and things like that. So yeah. I do think that we're a really amazing, innovative country. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that there's actually funds, really good access to funds here. Um, obviously not at the size that there are in the yeah. US predominantly, but also the UK. Like you're, you're going to get a much larger check size, but it's obviously much larger economy to be able to mm -hmm. do that. Um, so I don't think getting access to capital, I don't think is, is terribly difficult here. But I think getting access to smart capital is really challenging. That people, that it's not just money that can actually add value. Yeah. Um, and I think we're probably at the cusp now where we're starting to see the first round of real failures. Like, yeah. You know, the the scene here is probably only uh, five, six years old. You know, that there's been a proper sort of startup mm -hmm. scene. Um, and I think we're we're at the cusp now where we're seeing that. The failures and yeah, I think yeah. that, that does sort of knock the shine off it a little bit. You know, there's a lot of mum and dad investors out there who I'm sure have been burnt <laughs> by investing in some backdoor IPO who mm. are now like never going to invest in tech or a startup or whatever because it's risky. And yeah, um, so I think understanding that, um, I think that I mean, it's so different to when I launched my first business because there was no like startup scene, no like small business, you know, like mm -hmm. there was probably a local small business council or whatever, like there was no <laughs> like place for entrepreneurs to go and network and get advice or whatever. Now there's such a fantastic, you know, network and community here. Um, and where would you say the hub of that community is in Australia? Sydney's got an amazing startup scene. Actually, you know, I've, I've met some amazing founders and sort of, um, startup networking groups in Melbourne as yeah. well. And yeah. it's great to see a lot of the, the local governments investing in that. I don't mm. know how effective it is for yeah. them to actually get great ideas out. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool to see, you know, like Stone and Chalk and Fishburners mm -hmm. and Tank Stream Labs, like particular hubs that are really focused on one, you know, FinTech or whatever, um, particular yeah. vertical to, because I think the hardest thing for an entrepreneur is, is obviously getting access to capital, but then getting access to resources and support. So if you can build all of that into one geographic area, yeah. Um, yeah. they can end up getting this 
you know, um, tech Sydney idea of the one United yeah. incubator hub for all of the startups would be phenomenal. Yeah, and then totally different question. So, was running your own, own business always something you wanted to do? So, as you were growing up, how did you develop no, this dream? I really, no, I wanted to be like a diplomat, I think. <laughs> really? Yeah, so really diplomatic, that would work well. Uh, I studied politics and international relations. Really? No idea why. Yeah. Um, I just, you know. Back in the day, you, know, you got that book from your yeah. year 12. <laughs> you can choose something. Choose something. Here's all the careers in the world. You can be one of these things. Yeah. Um, and I guess I had that idea of, you know, I finished high school. I did well. I applied for a uni course. I was living overseas and, and traveling a lot. And I just, I don't know, I just sort of fell into studying yeah. that. And I quickly realized university was not for me. Yeah. And learning how to jump through hoops was never going to kind of be my, my jam. Yeah. Um, and I guess I was fortunate because I've had sort of, I guess, a bit of an eclectic career in sort of modeling and yeah. getting to travel with that and working with creatives and stuff that um, I'd been exposed to a lot mm. of different things. Yeah. Um, but I certainly didn't have the, I mean, if you'd asked me, yeah. It was never ago, your dream. Yeah. No, would I do this? And even five years ago, would you, if you'd asked me, am I yeah. going to start a tech company? And, yeah. You know, this is going to be my full-time jam. I never would have thought. It was going to be the thing. How do you think, so to that thing of, of when you're at school, you get the list of uh, jobs that you could yeah. have. How do you think we inspire the next generation? You know what? I just spoke at this amazing conference in um, Brisbane that yeah. the school had put on for their year 10s and 11s. Okay. School in Queensland, like completely organised by this phenomenal, I think she's a year 12 teacher. <laughs> But she had a female racing car driver, it was female, girls, all girls school, female racing car driver, um, a life coach, uh, myself, and someone else. And I just thought, how cool yeah. that this teacher was basically saying, hey, look, you don't have to know right now what you want to be. Yeah. And here's some people who do some really different things that are out of the box. I think traditionally, when you're growing up, you get exposed to what your mum did, what your dad did, probably your uncles and aunties, and maybe your best friend's dad mm -hmm. or whatever. That's about it. They're the careers you know. So if your dad's a lawyer, you're like, oh, I'll probably be a lawyer. Like, you don't really get exposed to much. And so I think the faster that we can expose them to a whole range of yep. different ideas and help them understand that, sure, some people are going to be, you know, academic and I think university is great for certain professions. Of course, I want my doctor to have gone to uni, probably want my lawyer to go to. But there's a lot of things like PR, communications, advertising, mm. tech. You know, there's so many things that you can either learn better skills on the job yeah. or in a short course or yeah. whatever it might be through yeah. having a great mentor than yeah. plugging away before you uni degree. So. And you were saying that was a female-only panel at a female school. Yeah. And, and so what's it like being a female entrepreneur? Do you, do you see any, do you make a distinction? I think the interesting thing was is I'd always only ever had my own business yeah. and self-employed. So I didn't, I'd never had like a glass ceiling at work yeah. been through that sort of situation. So I'd never really noticed it until mm -hmm. I went out to raise capital. And that was a very different world. Like yeah, that is yeah. very much a boys club. Yeah. It's a traditional sort of, you know, you go in, you do the road show mm -hmm. and you're meeting with 60 year old white men who it was completely foreign to me. And yeah. all of a sudden it was the first time in my life that I was like, wow, this is, there is a real gender stereotype yeah. um, at play and female founders are, are really disadvantaged in mm -hmm. this. Um, and look, I think that there's a lot of proactive work going in to try and change that. I don't think it's something that happens in a generation, no. unfortunately. 
Um, and, you know, a lot of it is a, um, unconscious bias. Like mm. people, they, I mean, I do it. You hire in your likeness. You hire what you know. You, you are unconsciously drawn to people who are like you or founders yeah. who, you know, that you resonate with them as male. Maybe that's not me male. So, um, and look, I think in Australia, we've had this massive pipeline problem, right, where women were never encouraged to study any STEM subjects. Yeah. There was this big, I don't know where it came from, idea that um, women weren't naturally good at mathematics, so why would they study it, or physics and sciences and things like that. So so now we've got this massive pipeline problem, and also, you know, tech was seen as guys in hoodies in a dark basement yeah. playing a, you know, it wasn't a cool, aspirational career. I was like, why would I want to do that? So I think there's a lot of legwork to do culturally as well. To, to and that's a that. mission that drives you? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think that we need to over-celebrate success stories of people like um, Jane Liu and Jim Melody Jordan, Canva. Melanie yeah. Canva, yeah. from Star Run. These fantastic females who yeah. have built businesses that are phenomenal, that have inherently tech businesses, right? Like a very strong tech background. And they're cool women, they're mm. cool businesses, and they've you know, done and achieved amazing things. And we want girls looking up to that and going, if I do, okay, cool, so the skills that I need to do that are these things. Let's, yeah. let's focus yeah. on that and I can achieve these things. It doesn't need to be being locked in a And, and, and how, do we, how do we do that? Is that, is that by Jane Melanie spending time like you do going to schools and inspiring? Is it by uh, the government spending time and money and resource, allowing those people to be really seen as a poster child and put on a pedestal? How do we do that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Yeah. So I think it's government investing in those startups first and foremost as well, yeah. so that more of them succeed, mm -hmm. so there is more um, prevalence of these success stories, especially female founders and success stories, um, but also to build a healthy, thriving startup scene here for those people when they come out to be able to get jobs. Because I think that's we need to solve that piece, and then investing in school and education and making it um, something that women want to study, yeah. girls at that age want to study, yeah. Um, and and understanding that for a while maybe it's going to have to be like advertising, there's going to have to be quotas, and we're going to have to look at how many girls are enrolling into particular university subjects to make sure that we fix what has been a yeah. broken pipeline. Yeah. And then yeah, I think it's it's a cultural um, problem for all of us to actually be making sure we talk to younger girls about what do you aspire to be? Are you, you know, how about instead of aspiring to be a fashion designer, you aspire to be a entrepreneur who owns a fashion empire, like yeah. Jane Lou or Julie, yeah. you know, like why don't we focus on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so spending the time to have those conversations. Interesting, you also said something earlier about talent leaves and goes offshore. Mm -hmm. uh, why have you stayed? Like what's what's been the driver for you to double down in Australia? It's a great question. I mean, we just opened in Singapore yeah. maybe eight months ago, um, which was probably which probably will be our next natural. And obviously, Singapore is a fantastic place to launch yeah. business. And they you you have everything set up there in forty eight hours. <laughs> so it was like sure, come here. Yeah, we are we our business there. It's the same. Yeah, yeah. It's plug and play. Yeah. Not like here. <laughs> Literally anything that you need at your resources, you know, yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so. Look, possibly we will move there um, as our main HQ. Um, yeah. There's been no real driving personal reason why I've stayed. Obviously, yeah. I have an amazing network and support network here, and yeah. our board is here, and our venture capital partners are here. Yeah. So 
Um, you know, it's been the, the natural home for us, I guess, um, so yeah. far. But it's also a very small market, and yeah. there's it's limited in the opportunities for for what what is next. Um, yeah. You know, and I invest in other startups as well. So looking at the scene sort of holistically mm-hmm. and looking at what my role will be next, you know, it is a small market, unfortunately. Yeah. And if we're not going to continue to invest in developing great businesses and great talent, then Unfortunately, you might have to look at yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I was having another conversation with someone, and we were talking about is the idea of an entrepreneur inherent in the Australian psyche, mm. uh, yeah. which I thought was a really interesting conversation because when you look at the US and the idea of the American dream, that's generally born out of making and doing something yourself. Mm-hmm. And we we're trying to work out if there is a parallel in Australia. And do you see that? Do you think it's something that we have as a drive? No, look, and um, it's a perfect example because you know America, so many immigrants came in and had to had to get ahead. Had to, yeah. And look, we do have that here, I guess, as well. Um, but no, I don't. I think we have this massive tall poppy syndrome, you know, which is yeah. really prevalent in Australia and, and a real problem. And that's going to take I don't know how you fix that, but you know. But then again, we well, on the flip side, we have you know we love an underdog. We love like you know. Yeah, give it a go. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the, the 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 little guy yeah. know, getting through and, and beating the massive you know. <laughs> Um, corporate so I, I don't know it's a tough one and I think um, we also don't uh, maybe it's because we are geographically so isolated from the world and being yeah. so far away um, and we don't have a big market but we don't I think naturally think bigger like mm-hmm. I think Americans think bigger and yep. in Europe you you know you have so many countries yeah, like that you know you're thinking from day one you're not just tackling you know the UK you're thinking how can I make this a um, a bigger product or a bigger service for, yeah. for a greater sort of regional audience. So I don't think we naturally necessarily think that here. Yeah. How do you think the world views Australia? Oh, it's a great question. Oh, look, I think people love working with Australians. I think we're known for having a great work ethic and, um, and being pretty easygoing and, and getting it done. Um, I think it would be interesting to know how our tech talent comp- uh, like competes on a global scale yeah. um, compared to, I mean, we have so many great hires come out of places like India, the Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, China, like we just had amazing talent who have, you know, had such great education and schooling there um, who moved to Australia and then, you know, so yeah. I think um, it would be interesting to know what what our talent compares like on a global scale. I yeah. think probably we're, we're viewed as, um, yeah, a, a little region pretty far away mm-hmm. and pretty parochial as well. Like I don't <laughs> know that um, we necessarily uh, look out enough. Yeah. Um, and, and, and on that point to looking out, where do you learn from? You know, you talked about earlier there was a startup in the US that shows everybody all their salaries for full depth of a piano. Like, where do you learn from and where do you look for learnings and inspiration? I have a couple of amazing mentors. Yeah. Um, and I've sort of always had mentors throughout my career and they just change naturally as you move into different sort of periods of iteration yeah. of your life. Yeah. Um, one of my mentors was an American founder, had had a couple of really successful exits, a couple of really abysmal failures, mm. one at all, lost it all, one at all, um, and moved to Australia. Um, and he was phenomenal in just explaining to me some of the fundamentals of, um, I guess, the scene and, and venture capital and raising and a lot of the sort of strategic background of um, how the game works. Yeah. Um, so, and then a lot of reading, a lot of books. Um, yeah. The chairman of my board is phenomenal and um, as sort of, 
endless wealth of information yeah. and has written books and yeah. um yeah it's sort of very handy in that sense and podcasts are yeah kind of i think it's the last bastion of long-form storytelling right <laughs> like no one sits down and digests a whole book anymore no yeah i think we're all just like dying to switch off and it's this sort of last way that you can learn yeah it's lazy yeah. learning but it's helpful yeah uh how do you find a mentor it's interesting because you said the word mentor quite a lot and so obviously that relationship yeah. means a lot to you yes how do you find someone that absolutely clicks and you can keep learning from it's such a great question because so many people like will email me will you be my mentor and i'm like i've never even met you. <laughs> i don't know about you let alone your industry like you're in whatever like fashion or i don't know um so i definitely don't think it's that way um, yeah. i think it needs to be this mutually beneficial relationship and i think you meet people through your career yeah. And you have these conversations, whether it's, you know, at a work event, whatever, and something just clicks and it just feels right. And mm-hmm. you can both kind of go, oh, I really, I really like that person. I really see value in what they're doing. And I really, as a mentor, you know, I really want to help. And as a mentee, you're like, God, that mm-hmm. person has so much amazing insight. I would love to just pick their brain for another hour. <laughs> and I think the, the best mentor relationships I've had have sort of come from those um, interactions. And yeah. Um, as I said, I do think it needs to be mutually beneficial as well. Like they want to, they want to add value, they want to help, and and I think you know one of my mentors would just be so honest, and he would say like, oh, I just get so much out of this. You make me feel relevant still. <laughs> you know, I I get to have yeah. the, I get to have the exciting risk of being in a startup again without actually That's doing risk. it. You yeah. know, like yeah, yeah. I'm not putting in the 14 hour days like you. Yeah. But I get to you know like see the highs and the lows yeah. from enough of a distance that you know yeah. it's not killing him and his family. So. And you're a mentor to people. Yeah. I'm yeah. Mentor as well. And and how did you make those decisions? Really based off just, the people yeah. that yeah that I met. And I, go, oh, I just think you are like phenomenal. I can yeah. see, and I think a lot of the time you go, I see so much of myself in you. Like I can see the same pain points you're going through. I see the same doubts. I see the same. You're hitting the same brick wall. Um, I see the grittiness and the tenacity and yeah. um, the determination and and all of those things. And you think, oh, and I think you forget also how much you've acquired over the years. Or like all of this. Yeah, the knowledge. knowledge that, yeah. That you just assume everyone else has. And then someone asks you a question, you go, oh my God. Like, I, it's actually I, quite fulfilling, isn't it? Well, I, I asked someone, my mentor, the other day, I, I, I can't even remember what it was, and I asked someone, and it was a female mentor, and she actually turned around and said to me, I actually feel awful that I hadn't gone through this with you earlier. I feel really guilty because this is my my role mm-hmm. is to make sure that you are okay in this situation and you know I hadn't imparted this particular piece of learning on you and that's terrible I should have I just naturally assumed that you know I'd, I'd told you that or we've been through this or, um, yeah. or that you knew whatever it was so yeah, yeah I think it's um, um yeah they, I think you forget how much you know and that you can change someone like dramatically improve someone's day or week or month or you know whatever by sharing that yeah yeah which i i agree you know the ability to give advice but also see the effect of that advice is incredibly fulfilling mm-hmm. uh yeah. and you know but then the value that you get back from it and the learnings that you get back from it yeah you know i, I can totally see why it's both something that you get value from above and you can help below mm-hmm. what does what does being an entrepreneur mean to you Ooh, that's a great question because i think it has been this like really overhyped word recently yeah um, you know everyone with a soy wax candle business at the bottom of markets is now an entrepreneur 
You know, I don't know that that's, you know, and, and the other is a terrible thing to say, but, um, you know, there's this, you know, are entrepreneurs born or made, like, yeah. you know, is it inherently in our DNA? Yeah. I think it means you've got a pretty high appetite for risk. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's definitely something that being an entrepreneur means to me. Um, and you probably don't accept the status quo. Like, I don't think as an entrepreneur, you don't walk into a situation or a room or whatever and go, this is just how it is. Like, I think you're always looking for, but why is it that way? Yeah. Why don't we do it this way? Yeah. We, um, always looking for that 10% that you could fix or change or yeah. break or whatever. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. Final question. Uh, if you had more time to do something in your life, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Probably at the moment, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I do need a good, I, I just need a go. Um, yeah, it's been a big couple of months at work with um, getting these new features done. So, how do you cope with um, burnout? Sorry to jump in. Yeah. How do you cope with burnout? Because it's interesting. Someone else I was talking to who he wasn't the founder, but he was the CEO of a company. Yeah. And he said that every year he forces a founder to have a month off mm. uh, just because he sees the value in managing the founder's burnout. Mm. Like how, do you, how do you manage that? Is it just more sleep? Is it's it? It's really hard. It's really hard. Um, I have an amazing um, sort of, I call them like my personal advisory board around me that will sort of hold me to account. Yeah. You can see. Because it's pretty obvious behavioural patterns as yeah. well when you start to burn out and you make rash decisions and you're not great to work with. and um, So they'll see that on the periphery and they'll say, hey, maybe it's time for you to just you know, yeah. take a break or yeah. have a day out of the office or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then I have an amazing counsellor, an amazing naturopath, mm. mentors, all of these people around me that um, I sort of heavily rely on who are very, like, very privy to the inner workings of my company and, and, and you. personal yeah, <laughs> yeah. personal health and wellness and yeah. uh, mental wellness yeah who because I, re I totally rely on them to keep me at my best mm -hmm. personal trainers things like yeah. that because otherwise i'd fall apart you know it, it takes a team you know i really say it really takes a team to make yeah. this happen well look thank you for that i really appreciate Pleasure. it i always love catching up uh, so i appreciate the time thank you thanks for having me up next we have canna campbell founder of SAS Financial and creator of Sugar Mama TV.